Hello and welcome back to EdChoice Chats. I'm your host, Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and this is a special edition of our Religious Liberty and Education series. I say that because usually we're discussing an essay or a chapter of a book, but this time we're actually going to be talking about a recent event. Earlier this month, French President Emmanuel Macron announced a crackdown on what he calls Islamic separatism. And a great deal of his plan concerns education. A part of his plan includes tighter control over private education. He says that in order to avoid what he calls illegal schools run by quote unquote religious extremists, they will be limiting homeschooling to children with valid medical reasons. Currently, there are about 50,000 French children being homeschooled, so this has wide-reaching implications, and education would be made compulsory starting at age three. So this is uh, clearly a plan that, if presented in America, would be considered incredibly radical. To discuss these developments, we have two guests today. Dr. Danish Shakil is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Program on Education Policy and Governance at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. He is the author of two studies we'll be discussing today. One is called Islamic Schooling in the Cultural West, a Systematic Review of the Issues Concerning School Choice, and a second study called Does Private Islamic Schooling Promote Terrorism? An Analysis of the Educational Background of Successful American Homegrown Terrorists. We are also joined by Gibran Khan, a freelance journalist who is the author of a chapter in a book which I co-edited titled Religious Liberty and Education, a Case Study of Yeshivas versus New York. His chapter is called Between Tradition and Regulation, What Can Muslim Education Offer the West? Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Danny, we'll start with you. The second of the two studies I mentioned concerned the relationship between Islamic education and terrorism. And the hypothesis I think that many people have in their head, clearly the French president is one of them, is that the more that students are exposed to Muslim education, the more likely they're going to become extremists and possibly become terrorists. Is that what your study found? Yes, so before I go to my study, I want to just point out something I read recently about Macron. I was searching for the ban on homeschooling in France, and I came across this CF News article from UK. And there's a paragraph there that struck my eye. And and the paragraph says, according to Lionel Devic, president of the Fondation Paul Lecole, an association that supports the creation and functioning of independent schools in France, Within court, it says, it is clearly established that not a single perpetrator of terrorist attacks in France came from independent schools. In his statement, he added that Emmanuel Macron lucidly acknowledged that Islamist separatism can be traced back to public schools and private schools under contract with the state. So there's actually no evidence in France itself that free private schools or independent schools are creating these terrorists or separatist sentiment. So a part of this is coming in response to there was a recent stabbing outside of the, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but the Charlie Hebdo satirical newspaper where there had been a shooting several years ago, and it was an Islamic extremist who was responsible. And so this, the specter of you know, so-called radical Islam is rearing its head again. But what that study finds, and what you also find, is that 
the students that are going through the system, the actual Muslim school system, are not growing up to be terrorists. So what's the disconnect here? What's going on? What did you find? So I looked at a small case study of the successful acts of terror in the U.S. And Patrick Wolf and I both looked at the right-wing terrorists, the reactionary ones, and their jihadist counterparts. Now, in the case of successful acts of terror, for data we could find, we found that there's no association between having gone to a religious school or even an Islamic school and then becoming a successful terrorist. Actually, if you look at the evidence, it is not causal, but uh, it suggests that if you actually go to a religious school and you have strong family, if you have strong participation in the community, you are likely to become a civic citizen. So actually, our study, and there's also evidence by Peter Bergen and others who have studied the topic, that these so-called religious schools do not provide either the linguistic or the technical skills for someone to become a terrorist. And moreover, they rather produce civic citizens. Okay, so this, for many listeners, may seem like a counterintuitive finding. Although those who are familiar with Muslim education would not find it counterintuitive at all. It would make perfect sense. I will turn to Gibran now. Uh, Gibran, why is it that you think that those students who actually grow up in the Islamic school system appear to be much less likely to go on to become an extremist or become a terrorist? Thanks, Jason. So I think the first thing to understand is that the general structure of a Muslim education is fundamentally a liberal arts education in the older kind of sense that even a lot of Catholic schools will adopt, where you teach some foundational skills, which are grammar, rhetoric, and logic, and you try to build up thinking skills and engagement with the great texts. And generally speaking, that kind of environment is, first of all, it's not even a politicized environment, but there's an environment looking at what's allowed by religion, what's not allowed by religion. And the nature of extremism is that it tends to not be moored to any of that. I mean, if you look at these horrible attacks that happen, they are themselves prohibited by the religion. Someone who's you know, put in four to seven years sitting and studying religious texts is going to be aware of that, as is someone who spent even a couple of years in the school looking into these topics. So fundamentally, you're looking at these curriculums that are very old school, kind of in a way similar to what an old Oxford curriculum would be like except you know, with Arabic and Persian sometimes as the, as the languages where Greek and Latin would have been before. This is actually something that colonial observers looking at India, for example, and seeing the kind of education that even Muslim shopkeepers would give their children, they'd point out this is actually very similar to what we have back home. They even study some of the same authors, but they know them by their Arabized names rather than their Anglicized names. So the entire environment is actually really just based on critical thinking and understanding rationality and logic and, you know, grounding that in a spiritual perspective. There's very little about that that connects to grievances or, you know, aggravates that kind of response. One of the interesting things that I learned from reading your chapter was that there are four different schools of interpretation of Islamic law or what's called Sharia law. Could you maybe just explain a little bit to our listeners about what these four different schools of interpretation are. Absolutely. And that's actually one of the best ways to look at the difference between extremism and the religious mainstream, because extremists tend to take attack of, you know, there is this path that this guy has come up with, and that is the way. But actually, in classical Islam, there are 
four interpretive methods that look at the same religious sources, which are the Quran and the Sunnah, and they'll apply different ways of weighing the evidence. So on any given matter, really, you will have a variety of rulings, even within a specific matter, like the way that people pray. Some schools will say that you keep your, your hands up. Some will say your arms are to the side. So there's this inherent intellectual diversity and debate kind of baked into the, the way that these subjects are taught. And this is there even in the earliest days, in fact. If anything, four is a trimming down from what used to be many, many more in the Middle Ages. So there is this idea that there isn't a monopoly on what is the right opinion. In fact, at various points in history, on civil law matters, there would even be multiple courts so that people who follow different interpretations could get a suitable ruling, which is very unusual for us to imagine in today's world. But there is this inherent diversity there. And I think that speaks to the fact that when you study subjects like this that require grounding in the skills required to do them, you're going to see that different people will approach the subject different ways, and there's no single answer in the way that extremists tend to argue that there is. So if you grow up in a tradition, and religious traditions tend to have a lot of universalist claims, right, about there is one absolute truth, but at the same time in Islam, there is this inherent pluralism, because there are these at least four mainstream interpretive traditions. Now, let me ask this first. For students growing up, going through a Muslim school system, are they going to be primarily in one type of school that focuses on one tradition, or are they going to be generally in a school that's going to teach, to some extent, all four? The way it tends to work is, as with any subject, you need to learn how to do something one way before you can uh, you know, if you've half learned a bunch of different ways, you're not going to be able to do the skill. But the way that it tends to work is you are learning one specific school of thought, you know, as part of your education. And generally, the variance there is just by the region. So in Africa, for example, it's largely the Maliki school. In Asia, it's largely the Hanafi school. But at the same time, you're also going to be studying usul al-fiqh, which is kind of like the philosophy of law, the roots of law. And as part of those studies, you do learn about all the schools. You learn about what makes their arguments different. And the founders of all of the schools are revered in the religion. If you're studying one particular school, it doesn't mean that all of the texts you study will be from that school. So, for example, the most commonly studied creed in the Muslim world is Aqidah Tahawiyah. And that creed is by a Hanafi, but it's studied by people of all four schools. The most commonly studied Usul al-Fiqh, or philosophy of law kind of book, is by Imam al-Ghazali, who is a Shafi'i, but again, it's studied by all the schools. So there is the same major teachers within one school will have students from another school, and that's always been part of the way that it works. Danny, I know that in your study, you can't actually make causal claims, and you don't actually have strong evidence that one particular facet of Islamic education reduces the likelihood that somebody becomes a terrorist. But given what Gibran has explained, what would you say is driving this change? If you could speculate on what the causes might be, why is it that students that actually grow up studying Islam full-time in the Islamic school system end up being less likely to be attracted to sort of extremist variants of Islam? So again, it's a speculation, but some of that I already discussed in the paper. Now, I would focus on two things. One is ideology, and second is government and 
Thirdly, I would add their involvement in the community. So when it comes to ideology, as Jibran already mentioned, that among the Sunni Muslims, there are four schools of thought or four schools of jurisprudence. What fundamentalism does is that it rejects the traditional consensus among the scholars, which is in Arabic called as ijma. So the fundamentalists, they go against the consensus and then they bring up their own interpretation. So they want to revive their religion according to their own interpretation. This is the ideological thing that is available to fundamentalists. And this teaching is more available on the internet than in the schools themselves. So this is the first thing that schools play to actually tie the students to the community they live in. So if a student is living, let's say, in, in Africa, the communal values will demand that they learn the local law, which is the Maliki law there. But the fundamentalists will, will draw them towards their own interpretation, which is available on the internet. So that's the first thing, the ideology level. The second is that at the government level. So many governments in the world, they try to control the schools. Let's say, I'll give examples of, let's say, Saudi Arabia or Iran or other countries. And there, they introduce a common core. And then the common core there is that the state will govern what is taught. And those states actually produce radical versions of Islam. It is not the market orientation which the private schools have. So if someone goes to a madrasa which is not governed by the state, let's say, for example, if you study the case of India, India has the maximum number of Muslims in the world. Maybe you can call number one or number two. But if you see the representation of Indian Muslims in the international jihadists, it is both by percentage and proportion the least. So much so that many Westerners from other countries have joined the battlefield more in percentage with respect to their proportion in the community. Now, our hypothesis in the paper is that it is because the Muslims there have a role in the schools they play and the government is not involved. So that could be causing civic citizens because of free market orientation, which is not the case, let's say, in Pakistan or other countries where the government actually intervenes in education. Third thing is uh, community. So it has been found in studies in Europe and elsewhere that if Muslims are attending mosques in a larger degree, they are participating in the communal activities, they are tied to the community. So they are not looking for some identity which is available on the internet through extremism. So these three things definitely play a role. And if a Muslim is having communal involvement, if they go to a religious school, which is providing them some variation in Islam, and then the government is not intervening in, the, in their education, they end up becoming a more civic citizen. That would be my hypothesis. So if what I'm hearing is correct from both of you, well, first of all, we've seen a lot of the terrorists that claim to be you know, committing acts of terrorism in the name of Islam actually grew up in relatively secular households in the West, went to public schools, or at least went to private schools that were secular in orientation. And then they get radicalized sometime in college or in their early 20s. That tends to be the profile. So if what you're saying is correct, it seems then that those students who grow up have strong ties to the community, actually have a strong Muslim identity, and have an education in what Islam really is, and these four different schools of thought, when they are maybe later exposed to some extremist elements, like you say, online, they're essentially inoculated against it. They recognize it for what it is. They say, this is not true Islam. You know, they don't feel any draw to it. But those who maybe don't have that grounding in Islamic education, 
can't see through those claims to uh, not only legitimacy, but, but claims to being the one true version of Islam. And if they are in their late teens, early 20s, they're searching for their identity, they feel alienated from the community. And then there's this voice that says, this is you know, the one true way, this is who you really are. They maybe are, let's say, less inoculated against that vision, and therefore, on average, more likely to be seduced by it. Would you say that's accurate, Jubran? I, that's actually a great way to put it. And actually, that's a lot of the thinking behind, for example, courses in the fundamentals of creed and the fundamentals of religion that are targeted at, say, high school students have that in mind, the idea that, you know, if you understand what the religion really is, then you're going to have a stable base for it, whether that base is for studying further or for being aware of, you know, this doesn't seem right. You have an understanding of what the reality is, and that way it, it makes you more grounded in the subject. And I think related to what you were saying, Danny, there's a dual factor there where in the places where you don't have the state coming in to run things, you do have a pretty organic system that emerges of kind of naturally regulating, which is that Muslim knowledge is entirely built around this concept of isnad, which is chains of transmission. So to study something, you need to study it from someone who has studied that text himself from a teacher going back to the author of that book. And so if you're grounded in the idea of studying Islam, you're not going to take your knowledge from just anywhere. You're going to take it from someone who's kind of gone through, understands the subjects, has studied the subjects. So that's an element as well that these kind of um, self-taught radical figures, they don't have the filtering that comes with having actually studied and learned about that system and, and understood that. I mean, any even basic book that I've studied has been with someone who has studied that from a teacher, you know, with a line going back. That's considered absolutely fundamental to the religion. And I think that's one of the ways in which a robust Muslim education system is very strongly protective against any of these kinds of influences. Yeah, on that note, Danny, the other study that you conducted, Islamic Schooling in the Cultural West, a systematic review of issues concerning school choice. One of the things you look at is what Muslim parents are looking for when they choose an Islamic school. So maybe you could enlighten our listeners about what it is that they're looking for. Well, like any religious parents, the Muslim parents want to maximize the cultural and religious components which they have and then transfer it to their students and their next generation. So they are looking for intergenerational mobility of cultural and religious skills, I would say. Apart from that, they also want their students to do well in the society. So they are looking for civic values that society possesses. They're also looking for cognitive and non-cognitive skills. So they value achievement, they value you know, mixing with others, going to museums, all the things which any religious parent wants. So they are no different than the parents who are religious from other communities. But there's a one difference though, that in Islam, the worship of God means that if you do any act, intention of obeying the creator, it is considered to be worship. So worship is not only praying in Islam. So theologically, if you go to a school and if you have the intention that you are doing it to please your Lord, it is worship. So this is the additional component which the Islamic parents have, if they are aware of it. So therefore, they have the incentive to let's acquire cognitive skills or uh, non-cognitive skills with the intention of pleasing their God. 
and therefore a religious parent can push their kids or motivate their kids to do well in the secular subjects as well with the intention to please their creator. Islamic schools are a rare phenomenon in the West. Like in the US, only 3% of kids, when I did the study, I found that two or three years ago, it was 3% of the Muslim kids go to Islamic schools. And actually, if you go to other countries in Europe, probably the Dutch speaking part of Europe has a greater proportion of Muslims going to Islamic schools. Among the 40 schools that were studied by Habdronkers, he found that those schools are doing pretty well at inculcating values and making them good citizens. So currently, there is no evidence inside the Western part of the world that the Islamic schools are actually creating citizens which go against the state. And this is uh, clearly not based on data. Turning back now to the president of France, if you are correct, then it looks like he's actually going about this the wrong way. Because if his goal is actually to reduce Islamic extremism in France, then it seems that he should actually be embracing Islamic education and working with religious leaders in France instead of what he's doing, which is trying to limit Islamic education. Danny, how do you think Macron should be looking at this situation? Well, I would say that Islamic schools, they're like a market and a market has two qualities. It provides the consumer with some variation in understanding so that they can decide what works for them. And secondly, there should be options of varied nature to choose from. So let's say I go to Mart and I don't have any idea how does a particular soda look like? How does it feel like? So I would end up actually trying a lot before choosing which is good for me. But let's say if I had no access to markets, then I would be just stuck with the one option I'm given with. And then, and then somebody comes on the internet and tells me, hey, I have a better product. I would definitely go for that person because I have no knowledge of differentiating between what I have and what the person is offering me. So that is the case that Macron is presenting. By taking away religion, by taking away the ability of a person to from, by providing them with no option to distinguish between the variation in the content, I think Macron is being bad. And therefore, it will be just a market failure. And a market failure in this, in this case would mean that a consumer will go for, for a product about which they have no knowledge because they want to build their identity in religious values, and they may end up becoming extremist. So by driving religious education underground, he's actually primarily going to be suppressing the more moderate voices and what's going to be left among, let's call it the black market or religious education would actually be more of the extremist voices relative to the moderate voices. Is that an accurate description of what you're arguing? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the consumer is worse off because he, ha he or she has no information about what the product is and how to choose and differentiate it from other products. Jimron, did you have something to add about that? I think as you've both stated well, there's massive effects there of cutting off what are mainstream forms of religious expression and therefore creating room for the very thing that supposedly the, the president is, is trying to stop. But I think it's unfortunate for a number of reasons, including the fact that this is practically an elimination of the public sphere. Under Jacques Chirac's presidency, Jewish caps, hijabs, and crosses were banned from public schools. And at that point, there was this idea that, well, parents exited that and went to religious schools or 
started homeschooling. And now it's as though the private sphere does not even exist at home anymore. And I think that's concerning not only because mainstream religious education does inoculate against these radical ideas, which is important, but it, it actually causes further alienation if even the private sphere is kind of an extension of the state. And I think that across the board, that's something very dangerous and very strange, and it's going to affect a lot of people. It's not purely a radicalism issue, but it's kind of a lot of this stuff as analysis of situations in France have pointed out relate to deep set socioeconomic issues that are not resolved at the public policy level. And this is basically creating a whole new one with unpredictable effects. And it's very unfortunate. And hopefully the administration and perhaps when it enters into debate in parliament early next year, some people will bring up the fact that no, actually religious education and homeschooling are vital expressions in the private sphere. And they inoculate against these very same negative effects that the state is concerned about. Our guests today have been Dr. Denise Shaquille and Gibran Khan. Dr. Shaquille is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Program on Education Policy and Governance at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. The two studies that we discussed were Islamic schooling in the cultural West, a systematic review of the issues concerning school choice. And the second, does private Islamic schooling promote terrorism, an analysis of the educational background of successful American homegrown terrorists. Gibran's chapter in the book, Religious Liberty and Education, a case study of yeshivas versus New York, was titled Between Tradition and Regulation, What Can Muslim Education Offer the West? Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. It was a pleasure. This has been another edition of EdChoice Chats. If you have any ideas for authors or activists or just interesting individuals you'd like us to interview for the Religious Liberty and Education series, please send them to media at edchoice.org and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on social media at edchoice and don't forget to sign up for our emails on our website, edchoice.org. Thank you. We'll catch you next time.